G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Hey Chris, do you like eating spare ribs? I do. I love a big rack of pork ribs falling off the bone. Slow cooked in sweet sticky sauce. It's hard to beat. I'm not a fan. I've got to be honest of any kind of ribs or any food where I have to use my hands and what? things dribbling down my chin and my fingers get sticky. You don't like spare ribs? So, um, yeah. look, let's just agree to disagree. But, you know, I I got thinking about Genesis 2, right? Something stood out to me. You know, ribs, they're not very big. Like, if I think about my own body compared to one of my own ribs, a rib's pretty small. So that made me think, how did God make a whole woman from a single rib? I know that God is God and he can do whatever he wants, and I'm sure that he can take a small thing and make it big if he wants to. He can do pretty much anything. So maybe it shouldn't bother me that such a small thing was used to make the woman. You know, For a while, I was content to just say, well, if God wants to do it that way, he can do it. And that really is the classic argument for anyone who wants to propose something miraculous, even if it doesn't need to be interpreted that way. In fact, you can have a downright bizarre interpretation of Scripture and still defend it with, well, God could do that if he wants. And that's the way I was content to look at anything bizarre or unusual in Scripture. Happy to just say, well, you know, this is a book about miracles, so if a miracle happens or something that I clearly don't understand is going on, then I can just say, whatever, God can do that, and it's all good, right? But all that changed when I actually read the text in Hebrew. We'll read the English here, and then we'll see what we find when we scratch under the surface or perhaps dig under the skin, if you will. Uh, you sound uh, creepier than usual. I'm getting some real Silas Lamb vibes going on here, and I'm uh, I'm squirming in my seat. I'm squirming. Sorry. Let's uh, let's read the Bible. Genesis two verse twenty. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. The end of verse 23. You know, I'm very thankful for modern uh, medicine and a firm believer that any major medical procedure should definitely start with a healthy dose of anaesthetic. And obviously, because we are reading a science textbook, we know that it's important that anesthesia gets mentioned first before the surgery happens. Well, Clarice, have the lambs stopped screaming? Sorry. Hey, hang on, Chris. Didn't we say before that the Bible is not a science textbook? Well, of course it is. Look at the text. You've got anesthetic. You've got a medical procedure. You've got the man being unconscious the whole time while God does the operation. I've been to hospital. I know what it's like. I'm sure that it, this is what's going on here. What else could it possibly mean? But ancient people didn't know anything about anesthesia and complicated surgeries, Chris. Are you even listening? It says God did it. So that means it's like magic, right? God can do anything. So whatever the Bible says, we could just take it literally because God could do that if he wanted to. So there's no reason not to take it literally, right? God could do that. But it says that God made a woman out of a rib. God could do that. And then he just filled a hole in the side of the man and left him missing one rib. Well, that's the way they tell it at Sunday school with pretty pictures and stuff. So everyone knows that men have one less rib than women do, right? 
It's so obvious. Everyone knows it. God can do that. Besides, you know the verse. Woman was made from the rib of man. She was not created from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be stepped upon. She was made from his side to be close to him, from beneath his arm to be protected by him, near his heart to be loved by him. Ah, oh, which verse is that? Um, I think it's in the book of Valentine's Day. I don't know. That's not the point. Right. Well, yeah, that's it's not in the Bible. And actually, men and women have the same number of ribs, and it's an even number. I mean, you have seen an x-ray before, haven't you? Uh, of course, I've seen an X-ray before. I've got an X-ray of my own chest. In fact, I've got it right here with me. Here it is. Look. Okay. Uh, count the ribs. One, two, three. Oh, hang on. They gave me a woman's X-ray. Uh, no, they didn't. That's yours. You've got 24 ribs, just like everybody else on the planet, men and women. Well, except for Adam, you mean. What? Well, he's the guy that we're talking about. He's the guy with a missing rib. It says so right there in the text. God could do that. Oh, man. We're going to have to go through this slowly. Let's start with verse 21. But before we read it again, I want to show you something else. Is it your x-ray? No. Well, that's disappointing. We're going to read from the book of Genesis, chapter 15. Actually, we're going to read the whole chapter. Here it is. Genesis 15 uh, from the CSB. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, Your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, Bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Okay, so that's the end of the chapter. So did you notice how God appears to Abram 
at the beginning of the chapter. I also noticed that uh, you're not reading from the Australian version because you didn't mention the Vegemites. But yes, it says the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Right. So Abram was having a vision. He wasn't even awake. And God comes back to him again later on to make the covenant with Abram. And once again, he's asleep. In fact, he's in a deep sleep. It's the same terminology we have in the Hebrew in Genesis 2. So Abram was having a vision in his sleep. Yeah, that's right. So why couldn't God just do that while Abram was awake? What's the point of appearing in a vision while he's snoring away? Well, that requires knowing a little bit about how covenants work in the ancient Near East. Two parties come together and negotiate terms, and then they take some animals and cut them in half. The cutting of the animals represents the serious nature of the agreement, in that the parties agree that should they break their part of the deal, they would be treated the same as the animals. So this is a matter of life and death. This covenant is special because God waits until Abram is sleeping and then conducts the entire covenant ceremony by himself, effectively swearing by himself to keep it, and thus absolving Abram of any responsibility to ensure that the promise God makes will be kept. So Abram has no part in enacting the covenant, but he gets to witness the whole thing from the comfort of his bed. So during that whole thing, Abram didn't have to do anything. God did all the work. Yeah, that's right. This way God gives Abram the confidence to know that what has been promised is going to happen regardless of Abram's uncertainty. That gives him a lot of reassurance and confidence in God's word. And you're suggesting that this is what's going on in Genesis 2 then? Yep. So if this is all just a dream, are you saying Adam didn't really lose a rib? Well, it's more than that. More than a dream? Sounds like a pop song from the 80s. No, more than a rib. The text uses a term that has an interesting meaning. That word that gets translated as rib is actually a technical term usually reserved for architecture and construction. I'll show you. In Exodus 25, verse 12, cast four gold rings for it, place them on its four feet, two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. And in Exodus 26, 35, place the table outside the curtain and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. Put the table on the north side. And in 1 Kings 6, 8, the door for the lowest side chamber was on the right side of the temple. They went up a stairway to the middle chamber and from the middle to the third. In 1 Kings 6, 34, the two doors were made of cypress wood. The first door had two folding sides and the second door had two folding panels. And Ezekiel 41, 5, then he measured the wall of the temple. It was ten and a half feet thick. The width of the side rooms all around the temple was seven feet. The side rooms were arranged one above another in three stories of 30 rooms each. There were ledges on the wall of the temple all around to serve as supports for the side rooms so that the supports would not be in the temple wall itself. And Ezekiel 41.26, just because I like being really thorough, there were beveled windows and palm trees on both sides. On the side walls of the portico, the side rooms of the temple and the canopies. So those are just a sample of the occasions where the term tzelah is used, uh, which was usually translated there as sides. So you should be getting the sense that God is cutting him in half. Like a magician. It is magic. But good luck getting an anesthetic to sort that one out. Luckily, it's just a dream then. Yeah, that'll be a lot of stitches. Mm -hmm. Anyway. I mentioned that this was an architectural or construction-related term, and we have another one coming up in our reading because in verse 22 we find that God builds the woman. The Hebrew there is 
Banna to build, and we talked before about how the man needed a helper that corresponded to him, literally a facing and opposite side. She is his other half. That's exactly where we get that expression from. So God brings the woman and presents her before him in his dream, and he realizes what has been literally right there the whole time, that his perfect match was never going to be anything other than a woman by his side. This is God teaching the man that the woman is his equal and opposite corresponding helper. And there is literally nothing like this anywhere else in the ancient Near East. It's one of the great things that makes biblical culture so good. Everyone else was treating women like lower class citizens. And it proves that just because the Bible tells stories about women who get mistreated or disrespected, it doesn't mean that God is okay with that. So the woman is the only living creature in all of creation that isn't just brought forth out of the ground. When we looked at the man, as you know from our earlier discussions on this, the man was simply chosen because of his ordinary nature and because he was nothing special. He was unremarkable. He didn't stand out. He was just like everybody else. And what we learned is that you don't need to be special to be chosen by God to be his representative because everything that's special about you comes from God. Not so the woman. According to this text, she is the workmanship of God's own hands, made especially to be the corresponding helper and ally that the man lacked. You might have noticed that the text tells us that God, having cut the man in half, closed up the place with flesh. What it doesn't say is that God rebuilt the man's other half and made him complete again. In this vision, the man remains incomplete as long as he does not have the other half that God built for him. But we would do well to remember that this doesn't mean the man is now worse off than before. It would be easy to read into this too much. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be single. It doesn't mean you need a partner to make life meaningful or purposeful. It's just telling us that this is the way that humans work best. We're relational beings, and it's not good that anyone should be alone. So... What's the man's response to this revelation? He invents a little poem. He gets all lyrical and introspective. And then he classifies her scientifically. It's a bit weird. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. So does he call her Eve or not? Well, yeah, but that's later. This is more about classification. I guess the first thing that strikes us as being odd about this passage is that he doesn't give her a name he doesn't know her name he's also without a name in this text this is shared power and authority neither one has leverage over the other it's also a really curious expression that the man uses here when he says bone of my bone flesh of my flesh and in the ancient world the bones were considered to be the core or the essence of the person bones were connected to the concept of hope for the afterlife and it was believed that if a person's bones were preserved then there was the possibility that their existence in one form or another would continue we see this reflected in the desire of Joseph to have his bones removed from Egypt when Israel left that land so that he would go with them. It was common practice in the ancient world for bones to be preserved in the family home so that the spiritual presence of the deceased could remain for purposes of intercession and veneration. The pagans extended these purposes to divination through necromantic rituals. So we get some sense that the bones of a person played a significant role in illustrating the unseen elements of the human condition, the soul or spirit of the individual, that would persist after bodily death. And the flesh, of course, is a clear reference to the body, the physicality and the plain and simple identification of the type of being in question. When the man says, this is flesh of my flesh, he's identifying the woman as a human just like him. So the statement that he makes concerning the woman highlights his recognition of not only her bodily compatibility with his own flesh, but her spiritual capacity to engage with his own inner man. The search for a helper that corresponds to him is over. Now, I mentioned this before, but one of the peculiarities of the Hebrew in this passage is the fact that it tells us in the most direct translation that God built the woman. 
Now, I'm not recommending that you go and tell your wife or girlfriend that she's well built. I don't think that's going to end well for you. But it certainly is remarkable that everything else God makes is just brought forth out of the ground. The woman, specifically the woman that God makes matched to this man, is handcrafted by God for him. That's why the man repeats his expression, this one, when he refers to the woman. This is a particular special relationship. He's not talking about this kind or this species or something like that. He's not talking about mammals in general. This is a particular woman that he's going to be united with for an exclusive relationship. In Scripture, it's worth noting that whenever man builds something, it's viewed negatively by the biblical authors. But when God does the building, it's a good thing. Once again, though, we are well served to remember that just because God has made something, it doesn't mean that there remains no work for the man to do. We see evidence in the scriptural narrative that what God makes is not intended to be perfect or finished in the moment that God creates it. There's always a task left for the man. In this instance, we'll see the man's responsibility play out later in the story. Awesome. Well, let's uh, leave it there for now because it's time for some of our listeners to get answers to their giant questions. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website at giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Jeremiah Vance asks, can you tell us the story of Lilith? What are the references where people get this story from? Okay, that's a good question. Thanks for submitting that one, Jeremiah. The first thing that I guess we should say about this is that you don't find Lilith used as a name in the Bible. So why are we talking about it? Well, although you're not going to find this story in Scripture, it's still a very popular idea that there was indeed someone named Lilith who played some role in events that the Bible does tell us about in the early chapters of Genesis. And you might be thinking, well, I didn't see anything in Genesis about someone called Lilith or some other woman, even without that name. So what's this all about and how does it fit? Yeah, Tim. So what is this all about? And one other question, how does it fit? Okay, so to answer this question, we should probably go right back to the start. And if we go right back to ancient Sumer, the cradle of civilization, we find that they had a word for a female demon and it is called Lily. All right, so that's the answer. We can wrap it up there. Oh, that was uh, pretty easy. Uh, actually, no. If we're going to get the full picture on the story, we need to pull together a few more threads in order to be able to see this the way that the people who came up with this idea were looking at it. Fast forward to the Akkadian Empire and the Akkadians in their language. That was the lingua franca of their day. They had a word for evening or nighttime, and that word is lilu. So these two words that I've just mentioned, lili and lilu, are not related at all. But the Akkadians had another word related to the Sumerian one that we just looked at. The Akkadians also had a word, lili, and it was used to describe wind or breath. So now we have the Sumerian lili, meaning female demon. We have the Akkadian lilu, meaning evening, and the Akkadian lili, meaning wind or breath. And then we're going to throw some Assyrian language into the mix. So we're gradually creeping our way through ancient history. The Assyrians had the words Lilitu for wind and Lilatu for night. You should be able to see by now that we're getting very close to this name that we're looking for, Lilith. So what do all these terms have in common? We have wind, breath, female demons, and nighttime. All of these are unseen, invisible forces at work in the world. We see 
evidence of the wind and its movement because we can feel the breeze and we can see things like leaves and dust being carried along. Darkness is also a powerful force because it conceals the means by which things are done. So the thing that causes stuff to happen at night uses the power of darkness to remain unseen. Nocturnal creatures and birds of prey are classic images of creatures that utilise the power of the air and the cover of darkness to their advantage for hunting and killing and for consuming the dead. Remember the birds of prey that I mentioned when we read Genesis 15 earlier? So naturally, this kind of imagery works well for conveying the attributes of unseen supernatural forces such as demons. I think we're ready to look at some scripture now, and our first passage is going to be the famous Psalm 91, verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day. So here we have the terror of the night, or in Hebrew, pachad la'il. Some people swear that they see Lilith in this passage, but I think that's a bit of a stretch of the language. I think it sounds more like Darkwing Duck. Remember that? I am the terror that flaps in the night. I am the ingrown toenail on the foot of crime. I am Darkwing Duck. A better candidate actually comes to us from Isaiah chapter 34, verse 14. The desert creatures will meet hyenas and one wild goat will call to another. Indeed, the night birds will stay there and will find a resting place. Okay, so in this translation, we have night birds. If you've got the old King James version, you'll have the screech owl. But some other translations give us some interesting results. Uh, we get the night spectre from the Rotherham Bible, 1902. The night monster from the ASV and the Good News translation. We get vampires in the Moffat translation and the Knox Bible from 1950. We get the night hag in the RSV. Uh, it actually comes out and uses Lilith as a proper name in the Jerusalem Bible, 1966, and the Lilith, um, so as a noun there, in the New American Bible. Uh, in the Message Bible, it says, The Night Demon Lilith, Evil and Rapacious. In that little survey of different versions, you'll have noticed the use of different imagery that we just talked about and also the term Lilith used as both a noun and proper noun. I did notice that and also noticed that you said night hag, um, but also, uh, look, there's too much to say about that. You said vampires. Now we're talking. Yeah, yeah, you get that in some translations, but it is a bit of a stretch from what the Bible is telling us in this context. That's not to say that the Bible is silent on vampires, but I'd be looking elsewhere if I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, night hags, yeah, that's another matter. But it is in the original Hebrew here in this verse that we find the one and only occurrence of Lilith as a biblical term. And I think the best way to read it in this passage is as a type of mysterious creature which is being used to allude to a type of demonic entity. So the King James Version is actually pretty good because the screech owl is a creature that glides silently at night time to hunt and kill and to take advantage of darkness to do its predatory work. And that serves pretty well as symbolic of the nature of demons, in particular this night demon. So where do we get this idea of a demon that hunts and kills at night? That actually comes to us from the ancient Mesopotamian literature about this creature. The Lili was a demon that would come at night time and prey on newborn children. And the way that it was said to attack was to suck the breath out of them so that they died in their sleep. 
Yeah, it actually sounds a lot like what we call uh, today sudden infant death syndrome. But, uh, of course, I'm not suggesting that if it happens, it's caused by a demon. Yeah, that's a good word. Maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but there's no way that we can just make a blanket statement and say, well, this is what's happening every time it happens. Uh, another thing that this demon was said to be able to do was to attack young men, particularly when they've just gotten married, and it would attack them by raping them in their sleep so they couldn't lay with their wives. Some legends have the demon able to actually bring forth offspring from these attacks and there are also male demons said to be able to do this to human women as i said these are ancient mesopotamian legends and you don't find any basis to support them in the bible at least not from the text we're looking at nevertheless people have made countless endeavors to weave the mythology of lilith into the bible and because of the language employed in the one passage of scripture where it is used in isaiah 34 People have found plenty of reasons to try and insert the character of Lilith into the creation account in Genesis. You see, in Isaiah 34, verse 11, we have the terms tohu and bohu, which we first encounter in Genesis 1, verse 2. Remember the expression formless and void? This is where it comes up again. So we've been reminded of creation, and then we have this uh, terminology of all these different kinds of demons and weird creatures. Yeah, so this was sort of convenient for rabbis in the medieval period who were looking for an explanation for the problem of evil. With this mention of a well-known night demon from Mesopotamia in connection with language that brought to mind the creation, all that was left was to go back through the early chapters of Genesis and find some place where this mythology could stick as an explanation for the origin of supernatural evil. We've got to remember that this is a time period in which a lot of Second Temple period literature that we're familiar with today was largely lost to the sands of time, waiting to be rediscovered centuries later. The rabbis didn't necessarily have access to texts that we know today, like the Book of Jubilees or its predecessor in the Book of First Enoch. And again, those books are not canonical, but it doesn't matter. Some parts of these books do provide really good ways of summarising biblical themes and concepts that normally would take a very long time to piece together and to understand, and they just make them quite plain and accessible. That's not to say that everything in the Second Temple period literature is reliable, and again, it's not inspired. So all reading that you do from whatever time period and from whatever source needs to be kept in check by the witness of the Holy Spirit as you read. So for those people who've made use of the Second Temple period literature to assist in putting together the puzzle of the problem of evil, there's really no need to be inserting extra characters into the biblical story. But in a time period where that was inaccessible, the rabbis were left to resort to the Mishnah and the Targums in order to find answers to these questions. And as they theorised and speculated about commentaries on rewritten scriptures, they found ways to insert Lilith into the story of Adam and Eve so that it gave them opportunity to introduce the concept of supernatural evil entities and the point of their origin. The reasoning was that since Adam and Eve were the parents of all mankind, they must have also been the origin point for other spirits too. And if an encounter with Lilith was enough to bring forth demonic offspring, then all that the story required was some empty time period where that element of the story could be made up and simply slotted in. So we get to Genesis 5 and we find that just such an opportunity presents itself. In verse 3, the text tells us that Adam was 130 years old when he had his son Seth. So these medieval rabbis simply speculated that since Adam had lived a very long time at this point, he must have been having children with somebody else rather than Eve. And that somebody was Lilith. So in this fictional story, the idea is that since there was such a long time that Adam had not had children, he must have helped Lilith bring thousands of evil spirits into the world. Wow, but that really makes me wonder if the rabbis had even bothered to read Genesis 4 because it seems that they had forgotten all about Cain and Abel. 
I know, right? Because they came along before Seth did, during that period before Adam was 130 years old. But, you know, why let facts get in the way of a good story? So even though the character of Lilith did not exist in the original story and the loophole that the rabbis thought they had found where they could insert it into the text doesn't even work, the story became quite popular. Unfortunately, these days it's quite common to encounter people who earnestly believe that Lilith was the first wife of Adam. These days, the story doesn't get used to describe the origins of supernatural evil as much as it does to explain the presence of people outside the Garden of Eden. The story works just as well to explain things like where Cain got his wife from or who he was afraid of when he was sent away. But of course, for listeners to this podcast, you should know quite well, because you've been listening to us from the very start of the first season, that there's no need to insert extra stories into the biblical narrative in order to explain the presence of other people outside of the Garden of Eden. I still maintain that the extra-biblical Second Temple period material is not necessary to explain the origin of evil spirits, but I do think that some of it works quite well to state it quite plainly. So that makes the whole story of Lilith quite redundant. And it's just as well, because more often than not, the story gets used to justify horrible things like racism, and we can all do without that. So instead of appealing to medieval period speculations on commentaries from late antiquity based on rewritten biblical texts after the Second Temple period, which may be anywhere from one and a half thousand years to two and a half thousand years removed from the original authorship of Scripture, let's just read the Bible and take it for what it says. Because if we're reading it correctly, it's going to fill in a lot of those things that we thought it was silent about because we weren't paying attention and reading it like an ancient Israelite person. So I guess I also need to say that this story does not provide yet another excuse for serpent seed doctrine to make an appearance. We've talked a lot about the serpent seed doctrine in season one of the podcast, particularly the last half a dozen episodes or so. The main thing that shoots this down as another potential avenue for serpent seed teachings is that serpent seed comes from the serpent, not from the woman. So if we're going to say that Lilith is the woman, then she's on the wrong team. However, this hasn't stopped some people who are quite happy to conflate the ideas of the serpent and Lilith as one and the same entity. Now, if we're going down the road of viewing the serpent beguiling Eve as some kind of metaphor for sex, then that clearly doesn't work because they're both female. But the most obvious thing is quite simply that if the biblical author had intended to identify the serpent as Lilith, then he could have simply used that name and it's not there. Also, there's no ambiguity around the gender of these entities and the serpent is quite clearly male and Lilith is quite clearly female. Anyway, that's enough of that nonsense. I'm starting to get a bit tired of refuting the same doctrines over and over and over again from people who just keep finding new ways to stick it into the Bible any way they can. It's time for these people to simply admit that they've gotten themselves married to the idea of this false doctrine and they think they can hold the Bible up as sacred to their worldview at the same time, and that is clearly not possible. It's one or the other. If you're going to choose false teaching, you might as well reject the Bible outright, but better than that, Get rid of the garbage doctrine, just stick to the plain text of the scriptures. If you're reading it properly, you will be able to answer all your questions anyway. Thanks again to Jeremiah Vance for submitting this question. I think it's been really worthwhile, and I'm looking forward to answering more giant questions next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Indeed. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions questions we're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on amazon or goodreads to help it become more visible in search results even if you just give it stars that'll help but a full review is certainly really appreciated please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show in the future we want to be talking about your stories as well not just our own so if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience we want to hear from you and we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful 
Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe to your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited he credited it to him as righteousness. Let's look at the text. You got anesthetic, anesthetic, anesthetic. I don't know what that is, but it's more powerful than anesthetic. Have you, is that Amen? That is a mashup of the Ultimate Warrior. Oh. And Amen. Oh yes. So that's I awesome. bought like four of them. Before. He comes with a cape as well, but that's in the box. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. That's incredible. <laughs> I think I want one. Yeah, I got it from oh, Amazon. Let's say yeah. um, they go they go up and stuff in price, but I think this was like I don't know what it, it wasn't cheap. It was like thirty five, forty bucks, I think something like that. But um, oh, still, usually they're like sixty or something. They don't just they don't sell them in Australia, but yeah, right. um, yeah Australia has very weird like distribution things. Like some things yeah. we get, some things we don't. Um, I hate that. It is quite frustrating. So I saw him and, cheap. And WA has even weirder things. Oh, yeah. That's why, like, on a Saturday night, you just can't have orange juice. You know, all the shops are shut. Yep. Saturday night. And you go to the service station and, and, and they don't have orange juice. Oh, okay. No juice at the servo. So you can have... Uh, you know, Coke and you can have chips anytime. But yeah, you can't have juice on Saturday night. <laughs> I, uh, morning, you, you can't have juice on Sunday morning until 11 a.m. Because that's when the shop's open. Yeah. Yeah. Just have these weird rules. Like, do you remember um, when it used to be common for people to buy CDs because you had, everyone had a CD player in the car? Yes. And you'd go to the service station on a Saturday and you could buy a CD. Yes, I remember. If you went in there on a Saturday and you saw a CD and you thought, hey, that looks good, but I haven't got cash on me, I'll come back tomorrow. And you would stroll in there on the Sunday and grab the CD and slap it down the counter. I'll take this, thanks. And they go, sorry, can't sell it to you. Why what? not? Oh, because it's Sunday. But stupid retail rules wow. that we have. Didn't know that. I'm glad that we don't have CDs anymore because we don't have to worry about that kind of rubbish. Yeah. What sort of country is this? <laughs> well, you'll be thankful. I did actually buy some eggnog on Sunday. Yeah, you got eggnog. I uh, We had church theories and um, I was we were at IGA and then your voice wormed its way into my ER and I was like, oh, oh, IGA. And oh. Uh, yes, I found some and I shared it with some of my dubious uh church friends and um oh. but yeah it was it was good uh first time i've had that in 20 years wow it was good it was better the than drought I is remember. broken yeah
Um, it was better than, I mean, it was probably like a new recipe and stuff. I, I It wasn't as like custardy and gluggy as I thought it would be. It was quite mm-hmm. the oak one, which I think is the one you always send me the photos yeah. of. Yeah. Well, there's probably only one, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was good. It was good. Sorry, I got distracted by my action figure. 